1: Before we begin, I want to remind you of the context of our text. We're in 1 Thessalonians and we're in the 4th chapter. And Paul writes his letter to the Thessalonians. And you'll recall, if you've been with us, you'll recall that Paul had gone to Thessalonica to, to minister and to teach and to witness and bear the truth of his, of his Savior. And God, the Holy Spirit, had gathered around him a small fellowship of believers. Most of these believers came out of idolatry because Thessalonica was a, a port city, a central city, and there was all manner of wickedness. And there were a lot of Gentiles. The majority of them were Gentiles. Of course, there were Jews there as well. And Paul began to disciple these people. And as he began to disciple them, he was only with them about three or four weeks before the persecution of the Jew, which seems to have followed him from place to place, literally drove him out. From amongst those people. Paul leaving with the idea in mind that he would come back to them, but to each city that he went to, they pushed him a little further out, him and his companions, till it got to the point where Paul kind of despaired from ever being able to get back there, though he hoped to. And he got to that place and he says, You know what? I don't know what's going on with these people. I know that they're being persecuted. So as a last resort, when Paul couldn't stand it anymore, he sends Timothy back to them. Now he sent Timothy so that Timothy could encourage them and comfort them and assure them that all that they were going through in the way of persecution, in the way of trials and tribulations were not unique to them as Christians. This was not some kind of punishment, but it was simply the world's reaction to Jesus. That it was to be expected So they didn't need to see that they were somehow singled out. They needed to know that this was part of the life that they had chosen. What we'll see from our text is that Paul taught these Thessalonians to live in a way that expected the Lord's return. That the Lord's return was imminent. Now when I say that word, I don't mean that like we hope that Jesus will return within our lifetime. I am talking about living with an expectation that He could come in a matter of moments, that He could come in days, that He might come in weeks, but that it would be any time, and it would be soon, very soon. And what we see in this text is that Paul taught the Thessalonians the same way. And so much so, some of them had taken it so to heart that they had begun to neglect some of their responsibilities, which is reflected in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Paul speaks to them and he says to make it your ambition and definitely endeavor to live quietly and peacefully, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we charge you, so that you may be able to bear yourselves becomingly and be correct and honorable and command the respect of the outside world, being dependent on nobody, self-supporting and having need of nothing. Basically, get out there and work. Get out there and participate in your society. But do it with a hope. Do it with an expectation. But then another issue arose. An issue in which they were very anxious and fearful about. And today we're going to address that in our text. Now this is Paul addressing the concerns of the Thessalonians because Timothy has come back to him. And he's come back to him, and he has reported on their condition and their situation, and he has said to them, to him, we suppose, because of the way Paul writes his letter, he has said to them, here are some of the things that these young believers are really worried about. And by young, I mean young in the faith. Read with me First Thessalonians 4, verses 13-18, through and I'm reading in the Amplified. Now also we would not have you ignorant, brethren, about those who fall asleep in death, that you may not grieve for them as the rest do who have no hope beyond the grave. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will also bring with him through Jesus those who have fallen asleep in death. For this we declare to you by the Lord's own words, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall in no way proceed into his presence or have any advantage at all over those who have previously fallen asleep in him in death. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud cry of summons and with a shout of an archangel and with the blast of the trumpet And those who have departed this life in Christ will rise first. Then we, the living ones who remain on the earth, shall simultaneously be caught up along with the resurrected dead in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so always, through eternities of eternities, we shall be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort and encourage one another with these words. Now, I want you to see the way the Father is comforting these people through Paul. This is Paul in this this text responding to them as a pastor. He seeks to comfort them by teaching them the truth. And I don't want you to see, and in fact it is not, this text as an eschatological teaching. Because that's not what it's about. It is a letter of a pastor. To a worried congregation. It is a letter that is about comforting their concerns and their fears. So you can put away your graphs and your charts. We're not going to go down that road. Okay? Let's look at verse 13. Now, also, we would not have you ignorant, brethren, about those who fall asleep in death, that you may not grieve for them as the rest do who have no hope beyond the grave. And Paul is addressing a misunderstanding. They were fearful and anxious because they were ignorant of the truth. Isn't that what it does to us? They were concerned about their loved ones who had recently died and predeceased the return of Christ. What was going to happen to them? The question had not come up before because, as I said, Paul was only among them for about three to four weeks, somewhere in there, and probably no one in that little fellowship had passed on in that time. And also, they again were, like Paul, expecting Christ's return at any moment and had no expectation of having to deal with this issue. But it came up. So they were worried about it. They were always looking forward to Christ's return. That was one of their greatest emphasis. Paul speaks of this in First Thessalonians chapter one, verse 10. He speaks of the Thessalonians and he says, "And how you look forward to and await the coming of the Son of Heaven." whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who personally rescues and delivers us out of and from the wrath, bringing punishment, which is coming upon the impenitent, and draws us to himself, investing us with all the privileges and the rewards of the new life in Christ the Messiah. So Paul says, I would not have you ignorant or remain in ignorance concerning those who fall asleep in death. And that word, asleep, which you'll see commonly used in the Bible concerning believers, is the Greek word kwemao. It literally means to lie outstretched or to lie down. It does refer to sleep, but in the present context, it figuratively refers to those who have died in Christ. And notice that Paul puts this in the present tense to address those who've died, those who are dying, and those who will die. He covers it all. In the Bible again, it's not uncommon to see this. We see this in Acts chapter 7 verse 60 at the stoning of Stephen where scripture says he fell asleep as they were stoning him. And in John 11 in reference to the death of Lazarus, Jesus tells his his disciples, he says, he has fallen asleep. Jesus is called in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20, he is called the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. In death. Now, the Greek word that is used for sleep is also the root word from which we get our English word cemetery. And it was adopted by the early church as an optimistic name for a graveyard. One of the things I love about the early church is that they didn't let the world shape their vocabulary. They shaped their vocabulary around the truth. They began to speak about things as they were. They affirmed the truth by speaking the truth continually to themselves and to one another. The world, as you read about the early church and the world that looked upon them and thought these people are a little bit strange in the way they refer to themselves and the way they refer to their God in the relationship that they have with their God, and they lived in the context of that relationship. Now, the biggest issue concerning our lives as Christians is that Christianity has become a lifestyle which we have seen lived out before us and demonstrated for us to the good and to the bad sometimes of Christianity. But the reality of Christianity is that it is not a lifestyle. It is who you are. You are Christians. So therefore, its expression is unique, as it is in each one of you. And the way you see and define life is not the way the world sees and defines life. If you try to fit the world's definitions on what Christ has given you, you'll find yourself sadly lacking. If I tell you, and you're thirsty, that water is sand, and you go to drink, will your thirst be satisfied? The world says for you, this is happiness, and you immediately define happiness in the context of the world. Do you ever find it? The world says this for you is peace, and you immediately define peace in the context of the world. Is there ever peace? The world says for you that this is what a marriage looks like, and you define marriage in the context of the world. Is it really marriage? In each one of these definitions, as you apply it to your life, and you take it out of the context of who you are in Christ, it finds itself meaningless, doesn't it? For you. Because you are not of this world. I love the way the early Christians had changed these things. Now, it's also important to note that this word sleep only applies to the body. It does not apply to the soul or to the Spirit, which are immediately with the Lord when the body dies. Okay? So Second Corinthians five eight, Paul says, Yes, we have confident and hopeful courage, and are pleased rather to be away from home, out of the body, and be at home with the Lord. Now there's some examples of the departed Walking about and talking and being active. Like in Matthew 17 where Moses and Elijah appeared on the mount speaking with Jesus. And also in Luke 16 where the rich man begs Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers to warn them of what happens to unbelievers. You see, we, the body, dies, but the soul and the spirit do not. So when we define death... We don't define it the way the world defines it. We define it differently. Paul tells them in verse 13 that he would not have them grieve, which he wrote in present tense to say, I would not have you continually grieving as those who have no hope. Paul's not saying that grieving is wrong. Jesus grieved at the tomb or in the garden, in the tomb of Lazarus or in the garden of Gethsemane. But he says, Stop grieving as those who have no hope. To grieve without hope is to grieve like an unbeliever. The lost only have hope in this world and in their bodily existence. Once the body is gone, their hope is gone. They don't have any hope beyond the grave. They only have hope in what they can generate here on this earth. You know, the unbeliever has a second death to go through after the general resurrection. Listen to this inscription found on a pagan tomb in Thessalonica. After death... There is no revival. After the grave, no meeting of those who have loved each other on the earth. Paul says, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. And what is hope? More to the point, who is hope? First Timothy, in 1 Timothy, Paul says, Our hope is Christ. He makes that hope a capital H. He personalizes it. Hope is a person. And what he is saying to you, he is saying, I do not want you to grieve as those who don't have Christ. Don't grieve as though you don't have life. For you do. Or that your loved one does. These Thessalonians were not just grieving over the loss of their loved ones, but some feared that death might have robbed the departed of participating in the gathering or the return of our Lord. Some may have feared that predeceasing the rapture may have actually cost these people eternal life or that they would have to leave their dead behind. That the, their dead would not actually be raised until the general resurrection, and they might not see him until the millennium kingdom came in place. They were grieving over this, because they didn't know what to do with the people who were dying around them. They didn't know what God was going to do with them. Look at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again... Even so, God will also bring with him, through Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in death. Now, some translations will say for it, but Paul is not suggesting doubt here. He is bringing up a point of logic. What Paul is doing is explaining why we don't grieve the way the lost do. We have resurrection life. We have eternal life. These believers who had died beforehand were not held captive by their bodies. They were not held captive by death. They are not held by the body. They're in Christ. These loved ones would be at the gathering. Look at verse 15. For this we declare to you by the Lord's own words, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall in no way proceed into His presence or have any advantage at all over those who have previously fallen asleep in Him in death. And this is where I want to make that point once again. If you are a Christian, you will never die. Do you hear me? If you are a Christian, you will never die. Your body will die. It's meant to. Do you know that when you became a Christian, you were saved, right? You were placed into eternity with Him. You were placed in union with Him. You were literally saved, redeemed. You were made into a new creation. But your body wasn't. Your body isn't. It's the last remnant of Adam. It is deteriorating and dying even now. I know the young people have a hard time knowing that, but the reality of it is. It's the truth. This leads to a misunderstanding. The misunderstanding is that we die with the body, and that's not accurate. The body dies, but we do not. We now live in union with Christ who is our life. We are never separated, not even by the death of the body. Death is not, listen to me, death is not, as God defines it, is not separation from the body. That's not death, as God defines death. You know what death is? Death is separation from God. That's how God defines death. Life is not in the body. It's not bios. It is not biological Life for us is Christ. We have Christ as life. So you see, whether we live or die is not the question. For the Christian, we live and we continue to live. While the body, that suit you're wearing, that earth suit, is slowly dying. That's what God has God has planned for each one of us that we will be able to lay aside the last remnant of Adam, the last obstacle to knowing the fullness of what we have in Christ. Not receiving more, but becoming blindly aware. I mean, absolutely overwhelmed with all that Christ has already given us. For you are complete in Christ, but it does not yet appear. You can't see it. And here's the truth of it, that so many of us get caught up in finding our identity in this stuff here, that we despair of its loss, we despair of how we're going to keep it, we despair of how we're going to nurture it, we despair on how we're going to maintain it, and we are afraid that if we lose anything that contributes to this stuff, that we've lost life, but we haven't. God has made us to live with such freedom, such abandon. I remember when my grandmother passed away. My grandmother died and I was at the funeral and and my cousin came up to me and he says, you know, I can't believe she's dead. And I said, y'all used to live in the same city, didn't you? And he said, yeah. I said, you saw her every now and then? Yeah, I did. I said, and then she moved away to San Antonio. How much did you see her after that? He said, I didn't hardly see her at all. In fact, I don't think I've ever been down here. I said, "You see, your grandmother's not dead. Her body is. It's dead, but she's not dead. She just relocated. She just left. You need to understand that, because we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We don't die. We lay aside our dirty laundry. And isn't that great. Isn't that wonderful that we can actually come to a place where we're going to to lay this aside and take on the clothing of a child of God? We live in union with Christ. We're not separated. Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4 says, For as the world is concerned, you have died, and your new real life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in the splendor of his glory. You see, that's why those who are alive don't have anything over those who passed on. They don't have any advantage as some of the Thessalonians may have thought. Paul starts with this, for this we declare to you by the Lord's own words. And what Paul is saying is that he had received a revelation concerning this issue. Now some theologians want to, want to tell you and will say that this, this revelation was specifically for this Writing, I don't know that to be true. I'm not sure they do either. But here's the reality of it. God didn't want us ignorant on this point. He didn't want us ignorant on this point. And what I love about this is how God, God himself intervened in the grieving and the suffering of these Thessalonians and gave Paul the revelation of truth to write to them. That your father. is concerned with every detail of your life. What you need to know, you will know. Paul writes, we who are alive. Now, what did you notice about that? He's including himself in that. We who are alive. You see, Paul is living in hope. He's not expecting to be dead when Jesus returns. Now, Paul didn't know when Christ would return. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, no man knows. No man has a clue. But Paul lived and taught expectancy. For Paul, it was not like we see today in the lives of many of our Christian brethren, where they're just hoping the Lord will come to get them out of the mess that they're in, or out of the suffering that this world has brought upon them. It's just hoping that the resurrection or the the rapture will occur to save them and to give them comfort. That's not what Paul's doing. You know what, if Paul was living for comfort, he could just stop preaching. He would put an end to a lot of his suffering, wouldn't he? That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about living in the expectancy, in the reality of who he is and where he belongs. He was not going to live like this earth with his home. He was not going to live unto this body. He was going to live in the reality that he was a spiritual being with a body, not a body with a spirit. And he was going to live every day to its fullest, knowing nothing but life awaited him. Paul lived, as we all should, in this reality that the world was not his reward. You know, I know a lot of Christians who live like the world is their reward. And you can see them. If they don't get what they think they should get out of this life, they're walking around with their lip dry. They're tripping over their own lip. They have a face that is absolutely in their front pocket. And the world looks at them and says, Wow, what hope are you living to? That Christian's living to the same hope the world is. And he grieves as though he has no hope.
0: Thank you for joining Pastor Todd Granger for His Life Revealed, the radio ministry of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. We hope today's message has encouraged you to yield to His life in every situation. Rest in His life moment by moment and receive from His life all that you need to show Christ in this world. If you'd like to know more, visit us on the web at hislifeministries.org or on Facebook at His Life Fellowship. And you're invited to join us for worship services on Saturdays at 5 p.m. at 7015 Wurzbach Road. If you would like to help support this ministry, send your tax-deductible donation to His Life Ministries, P.O. Box 1894, Bernie, Texas, 78006. And finally, this coming week, our hope is that the image of the invisible God would be visible in you. And remember, wherever you go, whatever you do,